Hello and welcome everyone to the very first installment of Game Masters. It's a weekly show that airs live every Thursday afternoon on Hyper RPG's Twitch channel. I'll be sitting down with Dungeon Masters, Game Masters, Story Crafters, Keepers, Guides, Narrators, Lore Masters, Referees, Moderators, and Hollyhock Gods. Joining me today is Abria Iyengar. Yep, I did it. Nailed it. She was a dungeon master at D and D Live in 2018. She this runs year. Pirates. Oh, 2019. Yeah. This she year. runs Pirates of Salt Bay on Saving Throw, and has been a player on many, many streams. I've been fortunate enough to have Abria sit at my table every Monday night as Laura Bennett and our Kids on Bikes campaign. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is really awesome. Thank you for joining me at the table. Oh, I like what we did here. Yeah, you're joining me at the table today. So, let's get right into it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, So, I grew up in the nerd closet. I was definitely like, I read comic books a bunch when I was little and really enjoyed reading. I was an only child, so a lot of reading. What's Um, the nerd closet? um, I was very worried about not being popular so I didn't tell anyone about all the nerd stuff that I like. Really? Yeah. So. And this was in Irvine. Yeah. So I'm from Orange County and was the... So to- th- this was a concern, an yeah. actual concern. It was a legitimate concern. Like I thought about every day, like, no, we're not going to talk about anime today. Just sports. <laughs> sports, sports, sports. So you were, you were reading comic books and you were doing things like that behind closed doors, yeah. afraid of how that might affect your overall status? I didn't want people to not think I was cool. This was back in the long, long ago before... There were 400 Marvel movies. True. I remember those days. Yeah. I did the opposite of what you did, mm-hmm. got stuffed in lockers and got swirlies oh, and stuff. No. So I am your case study oh, of no. you made the right choice. I didn't do it wrong. You made the right choice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Stay and <laughs> keep that nerd stuff buried Hold deep, it. deep until it becomes it socially acceptable. Exactly. And then it spits out in a font of lots of game ideas. Right, like right. years down the line. So how long <laughs> were you in the nerd closet? Uh, until about... My freshman year of college, and I was like, no one can yell at me anymore. There's too many people here. This is fine. And I, like, was doing uh, volleyball and track at UCLA and then also, like, went to anime club and, like, got to live my Harry Potter dreams. And I think that was, like, the gateway to tabletop RPGs just because I've always loved storytelling. And the more I got into stand-up comedy and improv, the closer I got to like actually getting to Dungeons and Dragons, which is, like, a lot of people's gateways, and it was mine, too. Well, yeah, it's the vanilla yeah. of RPGs. Yeah, you got to do it missionary a couple times before you get weird with it. You know, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I knew you were. So. That's where my <laughs> head was going with that. <laughs> so you saw the anime club in UCLA as kind of your gateway yeah. of comfortability and leading to this opportunity for you to feel uh, you were at a place to sit at a game table. When was the first time you heard of a tabletop RPG? Oh. And, and when did you finally decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to... I'm going to do I'm going to go for it. Ooh, this is a good one. Uh, the actual first time I heard of Dungeons and Dragons was my junior year winter formal date, who was like, really? you should come and play with our group. And I was like, absolutely not. And this not. is in high school? In high school. When you were still in the closet. Yeah. And I was okay. like, I don't know what you're talking about. What's D&D? I don't even know what dice are. And like, I know sold it the hardest you could. And then was always like, no, it actually sounded really cool. But like, I can't because I have a lot of like things to unpack spiritually. And then... Uh, I was looped into my first tabletop game as the girlfriend of like a group mm. that was forming. And they were like, yeah, oh, yeah. invite your girlfriend too. She'll be the cleric. 
Oh, yeah. okay. Cool. So that's how I got into my get first. Get to be the healer. Yeah, I was the healer for uh, two sessions, and then I took a level in Warlock and never turned back. It was great. I'm great. Like, nope, no more healing spells. I'm a necromancer now. Let's go. How long did you play Dungeons and Dragons before you decided you wanted to explore other systems? Oh, man. Uh, I didn't even know there were other systems for probably the first year that I played. And I was like, okay, this is what it is. This is fine. Um, if you, we, I think like I've talked about this a lot of places, but I have never really been a big fan of Lord of the Rings. Okay. Like that very like, no judgment, medieval, cool. Well, it's a strong opinion to have. I understand. There's a lot of strong opinions on the internet in general. Yeah. Oh, please don't add me about it. Um, I just, I've never really been into like high fantasy. Me either. I feel super locked out from it. And like, as someone who, like, I did grow up as, like, the token black person, so I'm very sensitive to, like, the idea of race and racialism mm. in fiction. So yes. it all, like, I, I, like, brushed up against it a little weirdly early on, so it right. turned me off from it. So I, if I had known that I could have played outside of, like, a standard fantasy system, I think I would have, like, overdosed on, yeah, like, tabletop games super quickly. But, yeah, I didn't know for the first year, and then about a year... And someone mentioned Masks, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game where you play teenage superheroes because I'm a massive X-Men fan, mm. which is why I blew up your spot. Mm. About. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think Powered by the Apocalypse was the first thing I had heard of. And then finally it was like, oh, I'll do a Google search about this. Did you wear your X-Men fandom secretly throughout high school? I did. So you were a Fox kid. Yep. <laughs> and you were in secret about that? Yeah. I went to every midnight screening and just like avoided my friends like the ones that were like fine with being nerdy so yeah it was a real weird dumb life but you got to have friends yeah i did not i'm sorry but i'm your friend now so i had little brothers i was a lot older than them so i definitely went through that stage of like at the age of 16 i still wanted to play make-believe x-men with my friends and everyone else was like you're an adult now oh no i was like well i'll just go play with my little brother who's eight years younger than me (laughs) that's really and i'll be a virgin till college (laughs) honestly same like yeah pound what it. up yeah well you know then we can relate to that we exactly. chose different paths but we ended but up we in the same place to just not having sex until later it's fine it's fine Who i cares? was just too tired i was too tired to ever get into that i wasn't but you know <laughs> so moving back to the game mastering yes. aspect we're, we're kind of following a track here yeah and after you found these systems what eventually led to you deciding you wanted to be the person running a table Oh, uh, this was definitely a, once I realized that there were other systems to play, I realized that this was a really effective medium to tell other stories. And I think the coolest thing about being a DM and the thing I love the most is that I tend to be the person in the spaces that I run in that is, that has a different viewpoint. So, uh, a lot of my friends are very like, cis hetero white people and I'm like oh I have like all of these like other frames of reference that I think you may not know about mm-hmm. so like let me like run you through what I think is an interesting idea and it was really nice because I've always been like met with open arms and like an open mind about all of that which is really nice and I know there's a lot of DMs that like have been no sold on like their wackier ideas but I think constantly getting positive feedback on like getting the opportunity to tell new kinds of stories and new kinds of perspectives has fueled me to like constantly look and see like what new and interesting types of games are out there because they facilitate different kinds of stories 
like the coolest thing to me about RPGs is that it's an it's an opportunity for you to like live in live in an experience and tell another story and still try to find the human through line that we can all connect to even if you're not playing like the exact avatar of yourself at any point I don't know if that makes a lot of sense no it does okay I feel like we just <laughs> went real deep okay sorry and, and just jumped right into it <laughs> So uh, that sounds to me like you take a level of responsibility with being a game master. Oh, absolutely. Um, what do you feel like your responsibilities are then? Like what, what do you think um, you bring with you in that regard that you feel you have a responsibility to do? I think the most important thing is I feel responsible for the group's safety. It's not always just about like being responsible with creating the fun because I think if you like walk in going like I am your only source of like content and fun and like you're going to do what I say like – it makes it puts way too much pressure on you it it disengages you from the idea that like you are like as as the fan of the players like you want to watch their relationships grow too so you don't have to be worried about being the sole source of entertainment but i do want them to know that they're like protected in their space i do a lot of like talking before and on the side about like what kind of content we're going to cover like where we're going to go with this like trying to like within the game and uh above the game trying to see like if people are interested in having like emotional beats and emotional moments or if they're kind of just there to like we just want to like slap ass and like punch monsters a little bit mm -hmm. and i think it's the it's on the dm to kind of know what their players want like what your players want to do and kind of curate that experience for them so you see uh being a game master as a curator of an experience yes absolutely so you're kind of the director of their fun yeah uh not the sole source of it but the director of it okay okay and uh, general question on that regard then, how long do you feel that you typically prepare for one of those scenarios Ooh, okay. when you're getting ready to send somebody on this adventure, um, and you're there to facilitate their fun, how much time and energy do you put on preparing that and getting ready for it? Nice. Um, I think there's a, like a long, there's a, there's a wide range depending on how familiar I am with any given system before. So I run a lot of fifth, edi fifth edition. It's my lingua franca for, uh, role play games mm -hmm. so it takes me less to like curate a scenario in that even if i'm it's a homebrew situation so it's probably <laughs> i'm a little obsessive so however long i plan on running it will be about the amount of time i put into it okay and then there's like passive time of like, right you're like in the shower and you're like oh man well what if the magic item worked a little differently and now we're building like this whole through line to like another culture like when you see i, I like chasing players fun so i think the like pre-scenario I just want to like build out bare bones like this is how the world works and you can find what you want but like as you go back into session two or session three of the campaign you chase what they care about mm -hmm. so I think all of that time in the like up top is establishing the world that you want to share share with them and know like not just like what it looks like and like how to travel places but like what it smells like what's the vibe that people feel like what's the emotional like through line that you want to give to them but then after that it's like chasing down what players fun is and trying to give them more of that if they're like oh this person really liked their magic item I'm like okay let's come up with lore for the magic item so what do you use for inspiration in those instances when you talk about what does it smell like where does yeah. it you know what, what feeling do they get from that location and place that you're trying to world build for them what aspects do you use from your real life to kind of inspire those thoughts uh and, and get into that zone as a creator um, this is going to be the most embarrassing thing I say. Like I just like started to sweat. I don't know if anyone on the stream can see it. Um, 
So from back in my stand-up days, I have a little, like, I use the record function on my phone all the time. I used to do it for, like, joke ideas. Mm -hmm. And now if I come across, like, a weird smell or, like, a weird sense that the place will give me, like, I will shout myself a note and then go back and listen to it. So I have, like, a whole, like, this big bin of, like, vibes. I might steal that. Yeah. That's great. It's really cool. Uh, That's really cool. There's a candle here right Mm -hmm. now that when I walked in, there was this very strong sense of, like, a very homey smell but it's actually like pretty cool mm-hmm. in the room. So it smells like there's like stuff baking, but then you come up and you don't get like the, the warm feeling. Right. And it's also Los Angeles. Exactly. So the smell makes you think fall, autumn exactly. and all those things. Then you look out the window and there's palm trees yeah. and the sun is shining and there's this cool blue light reflecting in. Exactly. And there's this a really trip. interesting t- like disconnect happening right now that I'm going to go put in my vibe folder about like a sense of like a place trying to like force you to feel welcome. Mm. in different directions because maybe like there's a sense of sentience to it and it knows like a brie likes to be like not actively sweaty all the time but also likes to smell good food smells so like what happens when a place tries to like build what you want but it doesn't know how to like do it holistically and like piecemeals it in a bad way so stuff like that (laughs) i dig it yeah (laughs) i like this idea though of just taking notes even about a smell that you get and a feeling that the smell gives you it's one of the i think I, I, it's the most nostalgic of yeah, senses, right? you know, and it takes you immediately to a place. And I don't think we think about smell enough as a storytelling yeah. device. It's, I got this note like forever ago. Uh, I think it was in an adventurers league. Uh, so my DM like start was, I actually DM'd in adventurers league and then started DMing for like home games and like learned through the crucible of DMing a game of 14 year old boys. So you, you started GMing through adventurers league. yeah it was wow. real rough <laughs> that that they no are, that's intense exacting <laughs> yeah that's intense yeah but there was one random gm there that like it was funny because i think he always got flack because his stories moved more slowly mm. than like other people's but everyone at his table knew exactly where they were at any given point in time so like when everyone would kind of talk after the sessions broke down like everyone at his table would have like more interesting, more like excited stories about what they did. It wasn't just like, yeah, and we killed the monster. It was like, I was in this room and it reminded me of this thing, but like reminded me like Trevor of like this thing from my past. So like everyone felt way more connected to it. Right. He was creating a personal connection from himself to you. Exactly. And I think that's like the very (laughs) cool thing. If you can make a person feel like their character Mm. for a while, like that's the cool thing. And I think using more sensory input in your description like does that because yeah. it forces you as a person to like make those neuron connections to like things in your past i love playing with that stuff yeah, just the right? idea of like Ugh. creating an overall experience for Ugh, your players you do it really well I'm it's so much fun like um, crazy the whole time but, no like, don't you're very good at it don't do that <laughs> uh what made you want to try game mastering then especially to start with adventurers <laughs> league i feel like that's such an interesting jump for someone yeah. to make to go from playing to be fairly new and it sounds like you came to it with a little bit of responsibility of feeling like there needed to be a little bit of difference in how these stories are being told yeah. and then to go to the way that it's kind of saying this is how you tell those stories yeah you know it's very I wouldn't say rigid <laughs> but there's a system it really is mm-hmm. um I it literally just came about I started playing with my home group and then because we're all adults with busy schedules we started playing less frequently and I like needed that fix so I found my friendly local gaming store and like sat in a bunch and then one of the DMs didn't come in one day 
And they were like, oh, it's just like a Saturday running a module. And I'm like, I'm confident. I can do it. Well, I'm not scared. I was terrified. I actually mm-hmm. went and puked before my first GM no. experience. Yeah. Because it was a wow. bunch of people that like I had known before and like super respected because I didn't have a very strong like base of like who I played with. And I was like, if I disappoint them, they won't ask me back. And so what was it oh about God. that that made you so nervous? Um, I didn't. I don't want to fail my friends. Like Okay. So I think a lot of that sense of responsibility is like, these are people I care about and I want them to feel as good about like the story that we're telling together as like, it's me, it's on me as the DM and the GM to like initiate it. And I'm always afraid that if it's initiated badly, like no one buys in and then just becomes like a thing you do for a couple hours and then go away and not think about anymore. So I think it's just that like, that getting over the hump of like, are we all here? Are we all bought in? Do we know what we're doing? And like, are we ready to like play? So it was terrifying. And then it was like a really silly module and it went super well. And uh, I didn't run anything for another like two or three months after that. And I was like, we know I want to. I'm definitely not judging you with my surprise of this. I, I told you <laughs> I'm not going to judge you. And I promise you I won't. <laughs> no, you're good. I'm just surprised because you come from a world of stand up and, yeah. and putting yourself on stage. And do, do you, f- I, I don't know. Do you get the same kind of nervous tension before you get up on stage for stand up? Um, the first time I do anything, I am terrified of it. Gotcha. So uh, being more comfortable, like I can tell you stories about the first time I came here. I almost called and like, I was like outside the door, like I should just call and like not go. It's fine. Like what if it just goes really badly? And it's just that like initial imposter syndrome like mm. problem of just like, don't do it. And then you just kind of do it and it's going to be great. And I'm very fortunate that as a young white male, my whole <laughs> life I've been told I can do anything. Amazing. So. I th- the worst part is I always feel that way with sports because I know I was like incentivized to feel like hyper competent in certain regards. And because I put all my like youth XP in sports, I always feel super confident with like physical things. And I get nervous that because I didn't like flex these muscles a lot right, when right. I was younger that like maybe they suck and like maybe I don't know what I'm doing. I can completely relate to that. I was always mm-hmm. way too short. Uh, I'm, I grew after the age of 20. I oh, was like a snap. freak grower. Oh, I was about cool. Lucas's size even when I graduated. And I was told my whole life, too small to do sports, too, yeah. too short, too small, too skinny. And I completely understand from that regard. Yeah. Anytime I was trying to play a new sport and I'd get out there, it was just like, what am I doing? These are giants. <laughs> I'm surrounded by giants. <laughs> uh, but I'm definitely a person who I feel like the more I'm told I can't do something, uh, the more I'm like, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll do it. You nice. know, oh, you think I can't do this? I'll <laughs> prove you wrong and uh, do that for myself. But nice. but this isn't about me. So let's get back to you. Uh, you started off by doing Adventurers League, which yeah. you said was a lot of like 14-year-olds. Oh, uh, no. My first Adventurers League stuff was just all people that were super knowledgeable about like 5th edition they had read all the books religiously and expected you to just know them cold. Okay. So I think a lot of the nervousness was also like, I didn't want to constantly be corrected. So I came out of the gate, like yeah. with a very like rigid understanding of wow. like, I can adjudicate like whatever rules you want in the system wow. now. Like, and then I got my group of 14 year old boys. They were like, the main one was a kid I tutored. So like I had already had a relationship with him and like he was super cool and then it just became like, oh, D&D can be different things for different people. Mm-hmm. For the people at Adventures League who are like trying to level a character, you are they are solving your puzzle. That's what okay. it feels like. You are presenting them with a challenge and they have the tools and understanding to use like the framework they've been given, which is like the addition of the game, to like solve that puzzle and unlock the XP. And that's a totally legitimate way to play. Definitely. And then 14-year-old boys just want to enter like be entertained by you and then a little bit interpersonally like they don't well at least my group didn't have a strong sense of like 
how to forge that amongst each other. You have to constantly kind of give them like things to do and then they like react to it. They're a very reactionary group. So that was like a completely different system. Like they didn't really care about the rules. They never remembered anything that they could do. And then even when you would remind them, they didn't care about it. They just wanted to be given a set of references that they understood and like to learn within the like limited metaphors that they had. Mm -hmm. So like it was a lot of like reaching towards popular media and like linking it to that sounds to like a help lot honestly i feel like me gming actors and you gming yeah adventurously kid it's very yeah similar. exactly where they're just like they don't really know how to behave in the space yet but like they're willing to it's just a matter of like building those muscles in people that haven't done that yet so how long did you gm adventurers league um on and off for about a year and a half and then i kind of backed off of it a little bit like and there was like a new influx of like GMs that came in and then you started a home game yeah so then I had a home game with my friends and that became like the third kind of GMing where you're trying to get your your people that you care about and that you love to like tell an interesting story that like will feel like all of the other stories that you have as a friend group like that time we all went on vacation together and like when we went to that party and then like when we went and killed that dragon Mm -hmm. so like approaching it the way you approach it, like you, the way you approach it, like actually like just being with people and caring about them and like listening to them and helping them like foster interpersonal relationships and like growth arcs. And uh, it's kind of the, the nice thing about being in LA that everyone has a very strong sense of like how like movies and like traditional storytelling works. So mm-hmm. like, it's really easy to like map on like here, we're going to like, do in a one shot we're gonna tell like a very specific it's a part of the culture yeah exactly which makes it's kind of nice it's a little bit of easy mode for right. my, me personally to like i would have i completely it. agree it's like yeah. it's like there's a part of it's just it's in the air yeah exactly of, we consume media yeah so we, we all know what we're doing like yeah. and everyone like picks up on it really quick and they're like oh we're doing this and you're like okay we're gonna live and we're gonna tell a coen brothers like story and Faerun and like Neverwinter and it's great and like everyone's on board immediately sign like, me up yeah right you should come to one of my home games I don't ever do them <laughs> yet. yet 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 so let's move from that into I think some tougher questions yeah. because uh one, one of the things I think we absolutely love about you here at Hyper RPG is um you don't hold back <laughs> and, don't. and we love that about you Thanks. And I'm really anxious to know your viewpoints on some things that I think a lot of people, especially in our community, don't really know how to talk about and yeah. don't really know how to approach, uh, but probably have thoughts about, but they don't even know how to like compose those thoughts. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about class race as it's used and referred to in tabletop RPGs? I know you kind of brought it up yeah. at the beginning oh, yeah. about uh, uh, D&D and, how, and Lord <laughs> of the Rings and how that makes you feel. Ooh, and, boy. And, and could that even be part of what ostracized you from ever wanting to yep. get into it? Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, like, as much as we want to say that, like, the stories we tell exist in their own bubble based on our personal context and modern, like, largely liberal sensibilities, if we're talking about young people, like, on the West Coast in the late 2010, whatever. I don't know how to refer to this decade. But it's you can't divorce that from like the context in which it was built. And orcs are a problem and drow are a huge problem. And are we allowed to swear here? Because I might do an accidental F-bomb. I'm kidding. I'm I won't trying, do it. I'm trying really hard not to. Yeah. Uh, boss told me to really try not to on this right, one. Not but gonna, you know, if you... If but you... I, got, I have F-bomb feelings about a okay. lot of the like legacy that comes into game. So 
fifth edition is really good and like it's always a, a step forward and it's really nice and really heartening to see how much people are thinking and talking about like how to approach class and race and gender and all of those like striding issues in tabletop and using tabletop gaming to like approach how to speak about them in the real world but like for me I think as much as I like earlier said like it's an interesting exercise in a tabletop game to live outside your personal experience it becomes really important to be super vigilant about like the way you lean into a world that isn't your own and a culture that isn't your own and like always being aware of the fact that like this is centered in like British white normativity like you have to be aware of it and know it and understand it and like it's not me being rude saying like yeah this is a very like white centered like I think there's some things that aren't even debatable yeah it's it's just just, true it's it's not not, yeah it's not trying to say that it's it's you know something that needs to be said oh and if you enjoy it you're bad exactly it's more that it is it is yeah it it just is, is and you have to work with like acknowledging it means you're able to like move forward and move past it Mm -hmm. so yeah I think there's still a lot of stuff to like unpack and deal with because it I occasionally see especially online like when people are very defensive over like the legacy of fantasy and how it like rip and and sci-fi and how it ripples into RPGs like I don't know it's it's hard (laughs) it's a hard thing and it's fraught and it's baby steps every day and like the initial steps of doing things like unpacking um like racial bonuses from like certain groups and not saying that like everyone from this like area always behaves this way like that leans back to a lot of like historically really unfortunate like stereotyping of groups and even if it feels like oh it's so it's so far removed from its initial like racist source it still informs a lot of thinking both in and out of game about how you approach people who are not like you and it's the constant like how do we engage with the other that can be a bit of a problem like I love D&D to pieces like I'm not here to drag it but it's a it's a conflict and colonialist system and Mm -hmm. it it just is that and you have to like acknowledge that to know either like how you want to try to change that so you can work in the system or to be aware of it thank it for like getting you into the fandom or shining a light on it and then finding the kind of stories that you want to tell in other probably indie systems written by marginalized groups for any marginalized groups who might be out there listening right now how do you as a game master then approach that and make yourself comfortable with that system and make yourself comfortable to run that system um oh with with, with like new games uh just saying maybe as like a tip of advice for other marginalized groups who may be thinking i don't know if i can do a game in D &D because of these things yeah 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 okay uh the first thing i would say is go back to like the the beauty of D&D is that you actually can tell the kind of story you want to tell in it. Just once you are aware that there will be points that you will bump on and everyone has different kind of bumping points. It just happens that like lots of marginalized, marginalized populations will bump on the one that like automatically reminds them and pulls them out of themselves and remember, like reminds you that you are constantly other than society and either you try to find a way to circumvent it or you pick the kind of fiction that you like to see my favorite thing in the world is that there was like a six-month period in which uh black panther uh like atlanta came out into the spider-verse and get out all came out and it was this really fun way in which like black people were allowed to be just weird in fiction like they weren't like noble 
or like very good at sports. They were just like weird and just there and just kind of like trying to live their lives. Find that piece of fiction, even if you don't think it would directly relate, like try to play Get Out in D&D. So tell the kind of stories you want to tell and just let the D&D framework inform it because it will help the non-marginalized population uh, in your game like immediately connect to it because it's still in the system they're familiar with. But you're beginning to show them the kind of stories and the kind of priorities that you care about within your game too, if that makes any kind of sense. Can we make Atlanta the RPG? Oh my god, I would run that in a second. Oh. Let's hit him up. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Glover, get at me. What up? I'm sure we're friends on Twitter. Let's get weird. Yeah. Please come get weird with me with Dice Involved. (laughs) So that's a way that you could possibly take, you know, some of these problems that have existed that we have to say exist. You can't not. And I think even D&D understands they have to acknowledge them now. Absolutely. And and I've seen them trying to make changes. Yeah. um, Despite their own community at times. (laughs) Yeah. and, And the kind of pushback that they may get. Uh, to kind of flip that from the that fantasy element, how do you feel now about kind of this new trend of um, going on adventures uh, based on real life cultural events in society? So, you know, like I think some people have moved away. Yeah. Uh, some of the systems and then there's some newer systems that are pushing towards real life representation. Yeah. Uh, wh- what do you think about that? I think this is an amazing thing that's happened, but it's also still like a really like eggshelly thing to try to engage with um because i've read and seen some horror stories of con games where everyone has to play like i think it was like a korean character it was a very specific man i'm i feel awful on twitter i'll probably yell later when this podcast comes out about all the like references that i'm missing Mm -hmm. about a table of like straight white dudes that all had to play like wildly outside of like their cultural set and it's as good as it is to like learn empathy via gaming Mm -hmm. it's also a thing where you have to constantly just have a little like post-it note to yourself of being aware of the choices that you're making are they based on tropes that you've been presented with in the past of what you what you expect someone in that group that you're representing to be like because then like for better or for worse you're leaning into stereotype and now you're learning the struggle that anyone in a marginalized population has like grown up in which is expectation versus like who you are as a person outside of like the group that you're constantly associated with. So I love these games and I think they're important tools, but they are uh, like, they are absolutely harder to play. Like it asks more of you to be like self-aware and empathetic. It kind of goes back to that responsibility. Exactly. Now you are personally responsible for like what you are doing in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. And it's really good work and it's, really nice to do and I think when you can pull off a game like that uh players that I know that have like played in games like that they love it and they rave about it and they think about those games beyond like the story that they told but like the way that they are different now because of it because you actually had an authentic like experience and an authentic moment so give it a try and like just check in with yourself and check in with the group and just just do your best I think is right the biggest. Do you think it's okay for tabletop RPGs to exclude certain groups of players? Mm. Uh, Do you feel like some of that's been done subconsciously? I think, yeah, I think there's always a sense of like trying to protect a thing that you feel sensitive about. You will inadvertently like exclude people from the experience because you like, you want to protect yourself. And it's hard to say like, 
yeah, obviously, like, please, no Nazis. Like, I would love it if Nazis, like, felt disenfranchised from this system. That would be amazing. Um, but by in, the, in that same vein and by that same token, I would love it if a game says, like, if you found a way to tell stories that were interesting and important and don't really allow you to do anything but, like, live these authentic moments and authentic experiences and learn and grow, like, I think of my fondest tabletop memories as like part of who I actually am and like the things I've for real experienced. So I don't want anyone to feel like kicked out, but it's a, it's a harm principle thing. Like you should be allowed to be in whatever space you want to be in until like it is harmful for you to do so. And like, it's just a matter of being self-aware again. I don't know if I answered that even a little bit. It's fine. Okay. We're just here to talk. (laughs) Yeah. We're having a discussion. Bouncing off of that, what do you yeah. think tabletop gaming is missing? Ooh. From your perspective, as a woman of color who had to kind of adapt, yeah, and you felt there was a responsibility to do so, what do you think's missing? Yeah, um, I absolutely think that there's an inertia problem with the kind of stories that we tell on tabletop. There are so many indie creators that are doing amazing work and telling cool stories and being super vulnerable about like their set of experiences and trying to like find a way to gamify and serve those up to a population that may have just grown up by virtue of being within like the majority having never experienced it but it's so hard to build any traction towards that like D is just such the biggest kid in the game and like pulling yeah, everything else true. toward it that like it is hard it's very hard to adapt stuff to make it work in D&D. I feel but like a lot even, of people currently are actually trying to adapt to make it work in D&D. Exactly, and, because and you can't tell. Even though at times it seems ridiculous. You'll yeah. look at what they're trying to do and you're like, why? why? Yeah, why not do it in like this system or that? But it's so hard to get eyes on those things. Like the biggest thing D, uh, like tabletop RPGs are missing is just a sense that the world is broad and vast and I can see it. There's a whole world behind a giant mountain that is like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons and it's hard to see. And I think that's just a little heartbreaking because there's so much interesting creative content out there. So to sum that up, you think part of what the world's missing is just the acknowledgement that there's so much more there yep, that you absolutely. should be exploring. And it's not a, it's not a dig on D&D to say like there's more and keep looking for it because you don't have to watch just one type of movie or listen to one type of music. You can appreciate a lot of it. But I think there like there's a unfortunate sense of gate gatekeeping and protectiveness about like the the game you wrote in on I was going to say something a little more <laughs> inappropriate uh the game you wrote in on that people that love Dungeons and Dragons still are like very anti other systems and other games mm-hmm. because they think that it's a zero sum game and I I just genuinely don't believe that that's true it could also be uh nervousness yeah you know, if you spend your whole life learning a thing, yeah, and that's what everyone around you has learned as well, it, it's hard to pick something up new and be able to approach it with the same level of expertise. That's very true. Um, so there could be a nervousness there of people adapting to those things. Yeah, uh, I, I hope that they they start. Um, you know, I know some people have called D and D a gateway drug. And, yeah, <laughs> and that's what I would kind of hope that it becomes this gateway to other systems yeah. and other ways to tell stories. What do you think that tabletop RPGs can learn from other disciplines? Ooh. Ooh, I like this. Um, I think the really obvious analogs to like improv 
and stand-up comedy are just to be flexible and to listen and react. Yes, but, and. Yeah, the yes, and. Like, whatever. It's, there's, it's like, so improv cliche, for TTRPG play. Like, that's a book. I think there's interesting things to learn from, like, organized sports in mm. RPGs. Like, the sense of, like... It's a good what, point. What was drilled in me, like, playing volleyball and basketball growing up was a sense of team play. Of that, like, you don't need to be the star. You need to, like, really lean into what you do well and use that to make other people shine. So, like, I don't know if we're going we're gonna, to, like, change this analogy towards, like, more video games and RPGs. Like, you don't have to put your XP a little bit in everything to try to be, like, John, I am, I am hero protagonist and I do everything the best. Like, why not lean into, like, what your character does well in this group and, like, think uh critically about like where you are in this group dynamic and like lean in and figure out how to like set up someone else for the assist like i may be the strong one okay we're gonna go have like a we're gonna have a interesting talking moment that's gonna be like non-combat instead of trying to like force this to be a combat so you can do what you do why not figure out how to like set up the rest of your players who have leaned more into like face stats to like be successful so like say that you're like i'm gonna help uh, sell this next comment with like intimidation in the back or like I'm going to be like I'm the rogue on the side so I'm going to like walk to the side and just slowly start like locking the doors or like blowing out candles and like set the scene like be willing to like set up other people for success and I think that's a thing that comes out a lot in team sports mm. because like it's organized, a team element yeah exactly that I think like it's a little lacking not to say there's not a lot of like sports sports babies in uh, <laughs> RPGs, but yeah. no, actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's uh, not something that's talked about much. Yeah. Because I think those two worlds clash a lot. A little bit. Yeah. But you're you're <laughs> you are exactly right. You can learn so much about team dynamics from sports mm -hmm. and how every person has a place, and it's not usually a fun game sports wise if you've got one Michael Jordan on the team. Exactly. You you want a well rounded you want you want the Golden State Warriors. Exactly you know? <laughs> exactly. Like that's why they win more. I think I made that analogy once during a game and got the widest, like the blankest stare and I was like, oh, okay. Less like the Lakers, more like the War No, no? Alright, don't worry about it. Everyone just do them. It's fine. So thank you. One That's of my favorite so people, and I hate to, to call him out like this on the show, but one of my favorite performers uh, that we work with is Hector Navarro. Yeah. And he does this as an improviser, and I know he learned this from improv and not from sports, <laughs> but it's such a similar thing. He's so good at giving someone a great slam dunk. Yes. Uh, giving them that, giving them that alley-oop yep. and letting them take it home. I love seeing people at the table who are all about supporting their fellow players and, right. and giving each other moments because oh, I feel at times that's our job as a GM too, yeah, to try absolutely. to make other people shine, yes. give them great moments, but the players have to do that with each other. Oh too. man. How good does it feel when you see them doing that too? Like it's that sense of like in improv, it's the, when we all figure out the game we're playing during a, uh, during a Herald, like, Oh, we all know the game now and we all know how to play it. Well, as the DM or a GM or whatever game runner, you always start off as the one that like knows what they're playing and because you probably think more critically about the group and like their group dynamic than any individual player does, it feels like you figure it out first. But like that, like, oh, my God, look at my baby birds. Like when they figure their stuff out and they start like cooperating in that way, like I have like literally cried. My cried favorite moments <laughs> as a game master are always when you get to sit back not say a word and watch everything unfold Yep. until that goes on for an hour and a half. And I mean, I'm going to do that forever. That is, by the way, my biggest failing as DM is that entertains me to no end. And uh, it's fine in home games, but 
kind of poison on streams. So I think that's like the biggest thing that I've seen and critiqued about myself watching back. Because uh, I, once again, athlete, I watch back my, my stuff like game tape oh, with a notebook out. Oh, yeah. I, I would just, never do that. And I rip myself to shit. Like, wow. it's great. <laughs> I'm hard enough on myself. I'm not going to do <laughs> yeah. that. I like. I never trust, like, my instincts in the moment other than, like, trying to make an immediate choice. But I know I'm not necessarily learning long-term lessons mm -hmm. in the moment because I'm just trying to, like, white-knuckle it to the end of the session. So then, like, later with a sense of, like, here's how it ended up, I try to go back and, like, take notes on where things went and like if like because we have to leave like 400 clues out for them to find one to like follow the line of the plot it's true so it's like learning like going back and watching thank goodness for streaming for that uh watching and figuring out how your players think so that they can do that oh that's another thing i'm a tutor on the side too so i i have a lot of like xp put in like figuring out how like my students think so it makes it really easy as a GM to go like, okay, they're never going to get this kind of hint. I have to figure out how they approach any puzzle and make sure that I'm leaving crumbs in the way of like, you just kind of throw them right in front of their face right before they look up and you're like, oh, look what you found. You did it. I'm so proud of you. You learned this yourself. But yeah, I think the letting them go on their own tangents for too long is probably like my biggest mm -hmm my biggest DM problem because it, it entertains me too much and like if you make me giggle like you have a free pass forever <laughs> wow yeah oopsie <laughs> I'm kind of the opposite <laughs> I noticed what life lessons do you think we can learn from tabletop RPGs Ooh. um going along with like the team dynamic thing I think tabletop gives you the opportunity to live more lives gosh that sounds weird when you say it out loud but it gives you this whole set of like experiences where you can figure out exactly who you are and how you respond to things even if you're playing a character uh my my biggest belief is that every character a player plays is some version of themselves like they found a part of their personality and they're just kind of like f like self-flanderizing mm -hmm. to explore it so i think at the end of any game even if it's just a one shot you know a little bit more about yourself than you did before and i think all of that can be used for personal growth and understanding like okay here's how i respond to like this kind of stress and maybe i won't be like in an inn when it's on fire because my like warlock went off for some reason but i know that like this like i have a stronger sense of who i am and like how i respond to good and bad stimuli and how i'm motivated and like the things that i care about so yeah we talked a little bit about streaming yeah, and uh, that aspect. I know that that's a big part, and a lot of the people I'll be interviewing on this show are streamers. Yeah. Um, how do you think it's different to GM a home game versus a, say, convention game yeah. or a show on the internet? You've done all of them. Yeah. So what, what do you see as the differences there? Um, let's start, like, one by one. Uh, for convention games, I feel like the, the onus is on the, the game runner to try to tell a really tight story as quickly and efficiently as possible. You don't want to step on player moments, but you know that there's like, there's a very hard time limit. And people that have like spent what little time or like money or re whatever resource the con is asking of you, that opportunity cost to be here with you there, like you have to try to like get all the way through it and give them like a full experience. Even if it's not super deep, it will be like broad and you started a place and ended the place. So. Yeah, like the brevity and getting to the point is super important. Um, the biggest difference like for me between home games and stream games is that home games, I will chase my player's fun 
infinitely because I don't necessarily care if we like get like games peter out all the time and it's unfair to like expect yourself as a game runner to like get all the way to the end of the arc or the end of the campaign because like life happens and it's the same kind of flexibility that you ask from your players like you have to offer to the group as a whole like maybe you don't tell the whole story but like the bits you told are going to be amazing uh can't like streaming and the campaigns you have on stream have to be like this really weird tightrope of both like you want to make sure that you're telling like a long arc and that people that are watching can jump in at any point and even if they don't know like why you're in this room now they are entertained by like who everyone is and are you doing like plot points simultaneously with allowing for character moments because especially i i feel like the most invisible i feel as a game runner is when i'm doing stream games because it's really about like the personalities at the table mm -hmm. so you're kind of just there like nudging your sweet stream babies in the right direction and like making sure that they're like getting the things they need to get in order to like have big moments and like fun set pieces i think i definitely do like set piece scenario building for uh street uh, stream games like where i'm like oh here's the one place i hope that they end up and sometimes they won't because once again like if you make me laugh hard enough we're just gonna sit in the bar and like make jimmy buffett jokes the whole time which is a thing that has happened and i'm fine with it it's fine but yeah trying to build like good moments that like people can take out of context so like if you come into a stream even if you don't end up like following and like staying through the rest of the campaign you come away with like in one episode or one hour or 10 minutes like you got a little snippet of like a good story is there anything that you won't accept at your table um as a as a game master do you have a not at my table <laughs> yeah uh, I'm once again, like a huge fan of like lines and veils and I definitely come off like up top and say that like, I'm not. Can you dive deeper into that for the people who oh, may not know? Yeah. Uh, lines and veils are like, it's part of a conversation you can have before a game where a line is a thing that will not exist in your game as a group and anyone can like proffer them. Like for me personally, I'm just not into sexual violence. I don't think it's a plot point, which is crazy because I watched all of Game of Thrones and went like, huh. I guess I'm still here for a reason. I just don't think it tells good stories and that's just a personal choice. Like some people can have that in their games and have it drive and be interesting. But like in my experience and in my perf like in my personal choosing, I don't like using sexual violence as a plot point or like a way to engage with a person or a world. So you'll never see it in my games. Um, veils on the other hand are things that like we all are gonna acknowledge exist in the world, but if it happens, it happens off screen. So for me, that's like animal animal violence. Unless we're doing something very stupid, like where I'm like, yeah, and then the giant like boots a horse like across, like unless it's done like in a very cartoony way, I'm not gonna have that like on screen in the game. Like maybe it's a plot point and important because the raven that was abused by the necromancer is gonna come and like give you like important intel, but like you're not gonna see it on on my screen. And oh, that's another thing I really like. I like a, a thinking of like the screen and like the camera at any given point. And I think that's a very LA thing in mm -hmm. games where you like kind of describe like what's happening on camera versus like the things that are being set up. Yeah, point of perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I enjoy that. I just wanted to say that earlier. I was like, what I was thinking about. <laughs> but yeah, uh, those are the things that just won't be in my game. I don't mind violence in general because once again, like, I grew up in D&D &D and that is a conflict and conquest system. So I enjoy games when that doesn't happen. Like 
just in the same way that like as much as I love like Overwatch, I don't like or I, I love like Untitled Goose Game where like Rake Rake and Lake. You don't have to have violence to have good stories, but like I'm not afraid of it. Was there ever a time that you felt like you failed as a game master? Ooh, ouch, that's a hurtful one and I'm sad at you <laughs> that you asked it. Uh yes. There have been times where I've tried to convince people that haven't played RPGs and were like initially standoffish about the, the kind of stories that they would tell. Like this is a lot of like trying to be, bring in like marginalized populations, uh, a couple like women of color that was like, no, 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 like RPGs can be different. We can tell like good stories here. And they just, they bumped really hard on like the kind of narrative that they felt limited in telling and like the tropes that they felt like forced to lean into uh that yeah i feel like i just maybe there wasn't a chance for me to like really bring them in and they were just kind of humoring me and hoping that they could be convinced otherwise but like i did feel like it was a personal failure that i couldn't like show them like what i alighted on and have been like honestly obsessed with for five years so it happens though like everyone's allowed to like what they like but i appreciate them for trying and it's okay (laughs) have you ever got tabletop rpg fatigue Oh, the burnout is so real. Yeah, I do this to myself a lot. (laughs) Um, When I like a thing, I will do as much of it as possible. But I do think that after a while, like, especially if you are doing this in a way that like asks a lot of you emotionally and not just like, yeah, my character has a very big sword and like smacks a bunch of like monsters in the face. Uh, For me, the fatigue comes from having to be emotionally vulnerable and emotionally open in a like um in a muscle that I don't normally flex because once again I deeply believe that like every character I've ever played has been an aspect of my personality that like I want to explore but because those are such underserved parts of me like they fatigue easily so yeah I think there's been a couple times where I just was too emotionally tired to like engage properly and it didn't make me want to play like I wanted to still play and be a part of the story that was being told but I knew I wasn't really like engaging with the story or like being as involved as I could be like it definitely felt like I had to like sit back and watch for a couple weeks because I just couldn't I did I just didn't have the bandwidth left to like be in it and be self-reflective it's an interesting thing that I think is hard to explain to people uh, who don't do it or who who maybe even don't play RPGs but then again Everyone plays differently. Yeah. Uh, but I know here at Hyper, we ask a lot out of our players and our GMs for certain shows. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the emotional weight can be very taxing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, that real life has a lot of impact on what you're, how you're feeling about going to the table oh, yeah. uh, that day. And I know personally that I put players through a lot and it can be hard yeah. and it can be a lot to take. And I, the same goes for myself. And um, that it, it's interesting how much real world can affect your willingness to sit down at the table and, and so go true. on that adventure. Because uh, I sometimes, you know, I, I think about how I could just show up at work and I could get my job done, but I have to sit down and I have to be emotionally vulnerable yes. for the next three hours. Oh my gosh. And um, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's the pre-tired of like, oh no. But I think that's also a really fair point. Uh, there have been times where like in games where we're playing and like more... Uh, like political games or like at least a politically aware there was like a game where we were all playing uh like marginalized populations in D&D so it was like a couple tieflings and some drow and like uh uh minotaur and there was like people you don't see a lot uh so like as 
things happened in the real world as news broke, I realized that all my bandwidth was being up, beaten up as an actual black person in America in 2019. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't do this right now. Like, can we play literally any other game? And I think we had to like go and play like Icarus. We just had to do something completely different because I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like this uses the same part of my brain that I like process my actual existence with. And I don't have that available right now. So that's a very fair point. Like, yeah. What have you learned from other game masters by playing at their table or watching or listening to their shows? Oh, nice. Can I give you a compliment? Ooh, I'm not really good with those. Okay. Uh, you don't, I don't care how you take it, but I'm going to give it because I think it's important. Okay. Cool. Sweet. You can just turn around. I have headphones on. Ah, oh, dang. That's fair. That's not how that works. Um, I think that like the recently the most interesting thing I've learned is watching you conduct yourself with Kolok because you have this very interesting sense of like you are watching out for like a thousand things simultaneously and I think like what makes me a good GM is that I'm very in the moment with my players and I love that and it's also why I have to like go back and watch stuff later because I'm not into it but like your ability to like be watching our table and watching like the through line of the plot and like also troubleshooting like a thousand things on your stream because you are still like the owner of like the means by which the content goes out is this amazing balance of like attention and like intentional like I won't call it disengagement but like you hold yourself back a little and a little away and it me it makes for a really interesting game. Like I've never been at a table with a GM that didn't feel like they were like in the trenches with with us. And it's a really cool feeling. Like I I seek to attempt it, obviously, like not in the same way, mm -hmm. but like to have that set sense in the game because I want my players to feel that too because it is a different it's a different vibe. It was heavily inspired by the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And that feeling of Rod Sterling is presenting you with an idea. Yes. And he's getting ready to take you on a journey, but he himself is not a part of that journey. Exactly. He's on the outside looking in and giving you the the premise of it. Yeah. And I like that because like there is a strong sense uh while like being a game master that like your players can turn to you and like ask you for like a little boost. And it's not that I don't feel that sense like at our table but like there is like a mental thing in my head that like i like as when i play laura like i can't necessarily like ask zach for like what to do now like i feel very locked in my own head and it's both intentionally like an important it's an important isolation that forces me to like engage with both like my characters like arc and plot and choices and like the entire like stories choices a little bit differently than I normally would. Can I also say as a game master, um, that has been one of the most challenging things for me as well. I can freaking imagine. Oh uh, my gosh. <laughs> because I want to be able to break Yeah. and to just say, ask me this or look there, yeah. do that. So it, it, it's a challenge too, uh, to constantly be reminding myself not to break that yeah. immersion, which is again, comes down to the point of like, there's a difference between playing at home yeah. and playing on a show. And yeah. we definitely treat the show that we're on together as it, it's a show. Yeah. It's entertainment. Uh, and so it's there very are, disciplined and I love it. Yeah. There's a lot of different, different rules there that apply that you would never have at a home game. Exactly. And if I, I would never want to do it at a home game. Man, it I would suck as don't a home think game. this game would work as a home game because it, there's no like outside incentivization to like hold yourself that way mm -hmm. so like it takes an audience and knowing that like you are being watched not just by like this sort of top-down game runner but also like an audience that like 
isn't in your head either Mm -hmm. that you like are forced once again into this like isolation like I can't just like say out loud all of a sudden like what my character's thinking that's like weirdly out of context and then just proceed forward with the like giving the group meta information and going so like it's really cool and really fun and really different it's been a real challenge for a lot of the shows we do here to rethink coming up with ways to tell stories without uh without the meta yeah and really treating them like live improvisational theater yeah and how do you do that whenever you still have to roll dice and do things like yeah. that so it's oh. we're we're learning every day and i think we still have a lot to learn but what if i would say from that uh, what have you learned from that, though? What have you taken from it and learned and thought, I want to incorporate that into something I'm doing? Yeah, uh, I think it's the, the sense of discipline that, like, your table will, you will influence your table way more than, like, your players will influence you. Because, like, that's just the the nature of, like, I am giving you the world. So, like, the manner in which I present it will, like, affect how you choose to engage with it. And like a sense of discipline of like, I am going to do this this way and hold that the whole time can help curate the experience of any game, like any scenario or any game that you're running, not only for you, but for your table. So I like that idea and I want to play with that more of like, how do I give, if I ran the same scenario five times, how do I give five different experiences and like how I would affect that, not just like player choices. Interesting. Yeah. I really like that. That's Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> Is there any other things you've listened to or uh, taken from in influencing you as a GM? Like, Ooh. you seem pretty in tune with the current kind of uh, trends of the D&D <laughs> world and stream world. Are there other shows or GMs or even sessions that you've had in your past that you came out of it being like, I, I learned a lot from that? Yeah. Um, I think another one of like the things that I experienced really, re- really recently that I loved was playing I like playing a lot of one shots I think you can learn more from one shots than you can from campaigns not just because like there's a lot of different types of things that you can run because you're not locked into a a certain kind of form but there are so many games that give you like weird experiences because they're like we can only you can only ever do this one time like maybe it's an anthology Uh, a lot of 10 candles has taught me uh, about like how to approach the end game of a game and subverting the expectation like I'm going to tell you at the beginning of your game that you're not going to survive this and you're going but I'm also going to give you enough like tools and incentives and like drives to like make you forget that that's true and then watch you like re-realize that all over again it's such an interesting system it's amazing I love it so much I, I love how that system does so much of the work for you. Yeah, right? I I think some systems, even if you're reading out of the book, every experience is going to be so different based on you and the table. Whereas Tin Candles is such a smart device. Yes. And the system gives you very little, but every story you tell within that world, you're going to go on a very similar emotional track. Yeah. And it's so interesting to explore with people and see how they deal with that. Right. Um, another thing I super love, uh, a friend of mine is making a like world building, it's like a tarot deck and it's split up into like relationships and like physical world building. So it's like a game you play before you start a campaign. Uh, it's called Decima. It's really, really cool. Um, and it helps you decide what the world is together as a group. 
And I think that idea of we're all going to build this world together and we build our relationships here and now and not wait for them to emerge throughout the game or be handed to us by a GM that is saying like, okay, you're going to see this mountain and I'm going to have to explain to you every time you turn around a corner what you're going to see. I like this idea that like if we all approach the world on equal footing, you know just as much about what's in that building as I do because you're the one that decided what it was. Uh, I don't know. I think it builds a different kind of like sense of ownership in the table that like it's not just that like it takes a little pressure off of the DM to like constantly come up with like and here's the room that's spiders it's the spider room where you're constantly trying to pull for new things to like throw at your players but it changes the way everyone feels about what they know and like can jump in and say like oh this is a building I made so like yeah I'm gonna walk into this room where my rogue already knows that x y and z are true like the confidence of players in like their exploration is like a really cool thing to explore that I've been learning while running and uh, playtesting Decima. Uh, and one other thing I want to compliment is I've had a couple different uh, dungeon masters that I've played in games with. Like they're very specific about that idea of like perspective and like the camera and what the camera sees and like even down to having like a physical like meeple on like the like battle mat showing you like, okay, the camera's here. What does the camera see? Yeah, exactly. So like it makes you think about your character, not only as the person inside your head, but like as a screenwriter deciding like what our story is going to be in this moment. And that once again, that like intentional distancing, distancing and pulling yourself out from like this moment where you're like, it's kind of in your panic of like, okay, the monster's coming. Like, what am I going to do? What, how do my spells work? Instead of doing that kind of going like okay I can breathe because I know that like I'm a storyteller and not just this character I'm a little more free to like you know what she's not going to be prepared in time and maybe she does get smacked with that but like isn't that going to be a more interesting story so what we see is like a super zoom in on her eyes as she looks around trying to find the exact right arrow and doesn't notice until like the frame gets knocked that she like the monster came quickly more quickly than she expected and got knocked out and like you don't feel personally like affronted that like your character got knocked out because it's like it's okay I'm part of a storyteller not just this one person this one time awesome (laughs) what kind of props have you been able to incorporate you have taken a liking to cheese which is (laughs) on our show a jar of of a melted human Mm -hmm. uh so it seems like you're a prop fan. It's funny. I'm a prop fan. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. It's because I've very rarely experienced props that, like, I didn't realize how much I was going to love him until you handed him over. And I think that's, like, a, another, like, interesting lesson that I've learned. They're like, oh, man, people like physical stuff. It was such a, like, fun thing. And, like, I really liked the bringing in, of like, a physical puzzle that needed to be solved, like, in real time. Um if you're about to ask me about like what kind of props I use, the answer is nothing yet, but I want to start integrating more. Uh, I enjoy, I probably do this less in streamed games cause I'm trying to like balance a lot of things and like can't be bothered hitting a lot of buttons simultaneously. But in my home games, I like using like sound effects and like candles and like trying to build a mood for rooms. But I want to get more into like having physical props and things you hold on to and things that you like think about and engage with. This is good for me to know with you as a player. Yeah. And I guess what you took out of that as well. What did it add for you? What did you get out of having that prop in your hands? And what does that enhance for you at the table that made you say, I want to I want to incorporate this as a GM? Yeah, um, I think it gave me as like a sense of stakes. 
during that episode, I or during uh, the most recent episode, I was talking, uh, Laura was talking with Billy about like what cheese meant to her. And I had to think, uh, Bria had to think a lot about like what having a physical representation of a person that was just with you that wasn't there and like this is what's left. I don't think my mind's eye could have successfully engaged with that. If it had just been like, and you scoop him into a jar and move on with your thing, I would have been like, and I drop him off like in my apartment and I, or in my hotel room and never think about him again. But having a physical reminder of like the stakes and the risk that this, like that the radar was taking has been not just, it's not just, it's very funny. Like I'm like, Ooh, I think I can make jokes with like, Mm -hmm. I also enjoy that part, but like having a physical reminder of what you're doing and like where you've been. I think is a really important thing because object permeance is one of the hardest parts of TTRPGs. Every GM has complained about like every player forgetting the 900 magic items they've been given that like I gave it to you specifically before because you need it for right now. Why have you forgotten about the key that I gave you? It's hard to remember. It is. It's in all especially because it's all about what's important to you in that moment. Exactly. I think we run into this trap all the time when you're doing it on a with a live audience, (laughs) they have these things in front of them and can access them even faster than say we can as players. I've been reminded by stuff by chat all the time. Right. So they're, they're keeping an eye on you and trying to keep you (laughs) to remember everything. And it's a lot to track. And especially when your character's in a current emotional state, your character's emotional state may not care about those things. Exactly. But it was really nice being handed a physical thing during an emotional moment for my character. So she like mapped a lot of like, this is a physical reminder of like how upset I was at one time and like how you don't want to be there again. So I didn't really think about that or realize it until honestly, like talking to you a little bit right right now about like the power of like object permeance via physical objects in a game. As a creator, what other forms of creation do you also participate in? Ooh, um, I am a bit of a writer. God, that's a cliche in Los Angeles. I hate to, you hate a to see it. A lot of people listening to this are not from here. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so uh, I do, uh, like, I don't really do stand-up anymore, but sketch comedy and screenwriting. So I really like this. If for no, if for no other reason, then it reminds me how people actually speak and interact with each other. And there's a lot more of, like, constantly hitting your own talking point and not necessarily, like, engaging clearly and directly right off the bat like I like stylized conversation but it's a nice reminder of how people actually are in points of stress that aren't typical um other kinds of art that I do god I wish I was more creative I'm not really (laughs) um I do you still do any form of comedy um yeah I do a little bit of improv uh I haven't done it in a while I've been like in a really big like pile of writing and honestly I, I do a lot of streaming so a lot of my bandwidth has been like this has been a lot of like the mixture of like writing and performing and like improvising so this has weirdly covered a lot of my bases do you find it rewarding as the other forms are it's it's problematically more rewarding because I think uh writing especially when you're just like I'm sending off a script and hopefully it becomes a thing later like you don't really have a sense of like how you did but it's nice that like in the moment a thing I wrote for like a scenario like will immediately hit and hit or not hit like I live in that like interpersonal feedback 
loop. So it's very hard for me to say I enjoy writing because it's so isolating. So it's really nice that like I get the performative fix that I need and like the instantaneous feedback, both good or bad. Like I don't mind criticism. I just need to know. So yeah, this has been a lot like RPGs has been a lot more to me than I thought it was going to be at first. I thought it was just like a movie, but like you movie back at it. And it's been, uh, it's been kind of the world to me for the last couple of years. That's awesome. (laughs) So when you are crafting worlds, whether it's as a writer or as a game master Mm -hmm. uh, or even as a player, because I do think players craft a lot of that world as well. Where do you draw your inspiration? Ooh. Um, I like to think about the things that I like and try to find like a small aspect of them and bring like figure out how to like connect that. It's a, it's a lot of the improv, like you never go A to B on a joke. You go like A to C. So if I like get out as the movie example I mentioned earlier, um, I'm going to figure out like what the least connected thing to my like masks teenage superhero game is and figure out how to like find the through line between those two things so a sense of like being an outsider and accepted but like the paranoia that like you see something that the other people don't so maybe your character like I don't know I don't have to come up with like a like a like a full analogy for it but I like finding like the the tiny through line because the reason you like something is important and valid and it says something about you and about the world and like what you want to see and what you respond to. So yeah, finding the little bit. So I, I find a lot of inspiration in like the media that I consume, but also, uh, I, I am a tutor. I hang out with kids a lot (laughs) and having like underdeveloped like metaphor sets and like just experience to make, you know, like good life choices is really really inspiring so like I spend a lot of my time asking like why did you think and or do that and hearing and understanding and, and going pro- oh I'm gonna, can I take notes uh. yeah exactly <laughs> and I'm like interesting and then like I walk out of my session and pull out my <laughs> my <laughs> recorder like a goob and leave myself a note to like write down later happens all the time just because like, they're like yeah I did this because like the one other time I experienced something like this in the world was when I was five and it went this way and you're like that's nothing. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm going to take that. That's, that's all good content for me. Thank you. I love hearing where people (laughs) draw inspiration from because what influences your stories is so unique to every individual, but it, you know, you can, there's so much that's similar in everyone's stories that come out and how they pull (laughs) from all these different places and they end up always overlapping in really interesting ways. Yeah. What other systems in tabletop RPGs have you been able to explore or would like to explore? Ooh, Ooh, um, I spend a lot of time in Powered by the Apocalypse, uh, other than D&D. I think it is very easy to pick up, and it's lightweight, and I'm like a lightweight, easy to understand concept. And I think because I'm in like a current evangelical phase of RPGdom, like where I'm like trying to get everyone I know to like just try it, just try it, try this one. It like there's two dice. You roll it and it like goes kind of well or kind of bad and it doesn't matter. You're fine. Um, so I've played a lot of that. I, I miss kind of like the crunchier stuff. Like I've never okay. played Shadowrun and I really want to. Um, I've, I haven't played Numenera, but I really want to. Like, uh, ooh, Monty Cook's, what is it? Invisible Sun that I heard so much. Like it seems so fiddly and so weird for the sake of weird that like 
every part of my brain is just like challenge accepted. I want to run it and I want to play it and I want to like lean into it as much as I can. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think just like weird complex games are, are my jam right now because I've, I've lived so much in the like lightweight and sort of indie hippie, very loose. Like we're just going to tell like it's collaborative storytelling and like, Mm -hmm. We, we want it to be rules light because we're just essentially playing fiasco. Like, yeah. So I want something that like has imp- imposes like a strong structure on you and the like creativity that's bred within confines to me is like incredibly interesting. Is there uh, any TTRPG creator and or system that's upcoming that you've heard about or that you're excited about? Ooh, that you haven't got your hands on yet. Um, yeah, I'm a big old fangirl of DC. Uh, they're up in Seattle, and their last game, I believe, was one of the judges' choices. Like it was a judge's choice for an any, and everything they do is just so creative and interesting. And I want to play it a bunch. Um, Swordsfall, Welcome to Tcor, was like the big uh, like campaign setting that was around the time of Critical Role's big uh, Kickstarter. Did pretty well. I think they just hit their goal, something like that. Uh, no, but Swordsfall, like this Afrofuturism like campaign setting, I'm so excited about because I just, yo, it's my like Wakanda like Black Panther problem of like I just want. It's weird being a black woman in America and not having that sense of like the glorious past. So like, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just very jealous that like lots of like white Americans can like look to like medieval periods and like knights in shining armor and like have this very strong sense, like sense of like an amazing past that you get to like play in and like, Oh, I can imagine if I was like in the Renaissance, here's what I would do. And there's this very like hollow sense of like, I don't really have that. So I appreciate that like there are up and coming uh, like black TTRPG creators that are kind of like filling that void of like, if we can't look into the past, like let's look into the future and what could be and what might still be and like what could never be, but wouldn't it be fun that's still informed by like a culture that isn't the monoculture that I was raised in. So yeah, those two things. Great. I have a couple tips here Mm. I want to ask to share your knowledge with the people who might be listening. What are some useful products, software, books, or other tools that you like to use that you think others could use to enhance their games? Ooh, okay. Um, let's start with 5th edition because I think that's like the easiest thing. I'm a huge fan of D&D Beyond. Uh, I am such a like physical writing nerd. Like I own fountain pens and like very bougie like $12 pencils and I love physically writing stuff. Like I'm a geek for my handwriting. Get at me. I'll write stuff down for you. Like it looks amazing. My note taking on point i'm so surprised my the whole Colock cast <laughs> loves to write i love it you all love to write physical your, writing physical writing it's my jam i despise oh it. no because you're a boy it. you have boy writing also it's i think it's like a weird lefty thing too like you either really lean into liking writing because it's like yeah I'm it's like, awful it, i'm gonna it. type everything yeah. i write smears all or over. you hate it because yeah. everything smears and it's a nightmare um but as much as I loved like, oh, I'm going to get in TTRPGs because it allows me to write more. God, having everything at your hands like on a like electronic thing is very cool. And I'm a huge fan of it. But uh, from the GM standpoint, I think my favorite thing to use all the time, no matter what system I'm running or what game I'm playing, if I'm building content, there's these cards. They're called Mithulu, And they're just 
these weird descriptor words that you like some of them are like location based some of them are like weird personality based some of them are just like velvet with a little description like a description of like what velvet as a sensory like concept is and they're in the same way that like I don't necessarily believe in tarot but I like the idea that like whatever like the card corresponds to will trigger something in your mind and like a light on something that you care about already but it just it reminded you via this like artificial system Mithulu is a set of like artificial system responses that allow you to be creative with just a little bit of prompting so I I tend to like build a lot of stuff via like Mithulu cards so like you'll pull like abandoned and like velvet and like blue for uh like a country and then you like use those concepts and like that reminds me of like I don't know some like former like sea locked nation that like dried out and like values their ability yeah, whatever once again I don't have to like give analogies but I like prompts so anything that like can inspire me if I'm not like walking around or like leaving notes for myself anything that's like an artificial sense of like here's how to prompt yourself to think creatively because I don't think I have a problem coming up with something it's just that like first little push to like think in this way and like what do you care about today and like how is that going to influence like the things that you're going to build that might not even come into the game for weeks just something to get your thoughts moving yeah exactly to make I think you feel I just more comfortable that. yeah I just need that like a little little like nudge so I have like a set I have a set of tarot cards and like a set of Mithulu mm -hmm. and I use those to like look at my own brain a little bit to see what I care about to build from there what advice would you give to someone who's just decided okay I think I'm ready to move from a player to a master yeah uh one do it two um you're going to be super nervous and you're going to care too much about like being correct. And I think it's less important to be correct and more to like, listen, listen to your players. The most important, like the thing I hate the most is in the world is the adversarial GM as a concept. I think any game runner should be the biggest fan of the, of the players as they can. And if you're playing something that's a little more risky where there's like TPKs are on the table and like, it's intentionally difficult. Like that doesn't mean you're not a fan of the players and it doesn't mean you give them everything you want or everything they want the moment they ask for it. But it means always thinking about like how best to serve them and let them be the heroes that you want them to be in the story and have them like help them have the moments that they're, you see that they're trying to have. It's like being a parent and like kind of like nudging the kid. I, I think about it a lot like being a parent. Yeah, right? I'm not, I don't have kids myself. Yeah, same. <laughs> but I've been the dad in my friend group for a very long time. Yeah. And when I'm GMing, I think about it a lot like that. Like, I'm not going to give you what you want. Yeah. I'm going to give you what you need to get what you want yourself. Exactly. And then watching them do it is like, it is a drug. You're going to like be super stressed out the first time and that's totally fine. But like the moment you figure out the kind of stories you want to tell and you help your players tell it with you like watching that sort of like brain alchemy come together is amazing. Also don't stress out too much about not having all the tools. Uh, I tried very intentionally not to mention a lot of like doodads to have in a game to make a better experience. I've played with like full massive articulated sets and like painted minis and like things to scale. It's cool, it's wonderful. But the theater of the mind is amazing too. And like whatever you have, 
your players are going to just be happy to be there with you. And just remember that, like, this is a joyful experience, even if you're playing 10 candles and everyone's going to die and is really sad and stressed out about it. Like approach it with the sense that like you're all in it together. You just have a slightly different thing you're bringing to the table. You're not bringing your individual experience you're bringing like all of the stimuli, just like a, like a Methulu deck. Uh, you're just there to spark them thinking about themselves and getting them to react to the world and like be whatever you guys have all agreed that you guys are going to be on this trip. And it's fun. Don't worry about it. Just be wrong. Who cares? Just tell it, like send a group text later and be like, yo, I did that rule wrong, but like whatever. Also, I'm like not a big... I don't mind occasionally fudging rolls <laughs> to like that tell was a going story. to be was it my next question Shut up. my final question oh no so I'm glad that you prompted it <laughs> my final question of the day before yeah. we move on to audience questions is do you think it's okay to fudge <laughs> all right if I'm being super duper honest I don't have a problem fudging rolls I tend to never uh, well not tend to I don't ever fudge high uh I roll really high in general because I am blessed by the dice gods. What you couldn't see, people yeah. listening on the podcast, you could was hear it. You felt a flip it. of hair yeah. that came with that uh, comment. When I'm the GM, I roll really well. When I play with Zach, I don't roll very well. Uh, as a GM, I don't feel like being successful all the time is the most interesting thing when you're working, especially when you're like counter to the party at a given point. So I'm not... Like, I'm not going to, like, crit on our level one characters, mm -hmm. like, the moment they come out of the gate and, like, pick a bar fight. Because you, you can wipe a group with that. And, like, that means n it's nothing. Uh, I always feel like serving the story and serving my players. And that doesn't mean, like, throwing softballs at them or, like, pulling punches. But there is a sense of, like, knowing when it's the right time to, like, push. And when it's the right time to say, like, okay, this maybe that hit means more later so i'm just not going to do it now so i don't have a problem with it like i have players who have like asked and like please don't roll behind a thing i'm like okay just know that like anything can happen and sometimes it'll make for like a dud of a moment and i'm sorry about it but like yeah i don't mind fudging rolls it's fine it's cool <laughs> sorry about it at me i don't care i'll fight about this all day so before we go yeah I wanted to ask some questions from the live chat room. Yeah. We've had the moderators chat. pull some together for us, so I'm going to send you a couple questions right now. Moss Brethren wants to know, what is the process like for determining what kind of story you want to tell during the RPG? Ooh. How do you go about deciding that? Um, I'm a whimsy bench. So uh, whatever, like if there's not something that we've talked about before, like I have a home game spinning up right now. And like, I literally was on the phone for like 20 minutes in traffic as like two of my players like kept texting and calling me and they're like, oh, is this like a thing we could do? Is that a thing? Like, is that a story you can tell? Like, oh my God. Yeah. please. <coughs> if you give me inspiration, like we'll play whatever thing that you alight on and think is cool. For me, I think it's if I come across like a piece of fiction in the world, uh, that is quirky or has like an interesting viewpoint. That's usually what inspires the kind of story I'm going to tell. Cause once again, it's that idea of like GM discipline and I'm like, okay, how disciplined do I have to be to like give a story that evokes the feeling that I got when I walked out of that movie theater. So it's really, it's not that hard to like have like a Marvel level, like MCU storytelling. Like it's a big heroic moment and like, we can all follow like everyone knows the three acts of a Marvel movie, like a liturgy at like at church. 
but telling quirky stories and telling like weird little things and like little bottle stories that like have different pacing and burn differently uh, is like a fun thing. I like try to sit and think about and create moments and set pieces for to like have them pay off and yeah, just watch, watch movies and read. Like, well, I read a lot of books too. So that must be nice. <laughs> I listen to them. It's all audible. I drive a lot. Eridence wants to know, how do you approach world building? Ooh. Um, I, I love world building. Uh, if we want to talk building physical spaces, then I think I'm influenced a lot by, man, I think it's, that's more of like a book thing. If there's like worlds that are created, like I'm reading a lot of sci-fi right now. So I think I am thinking in a lot of like those weirder terms and like how to turn uh, like the isolation of space and like weird, like, cyberpunky future things and how to like put those concepts and those notions in other spaces um for me a lot of world building has to do with like cultures i love cultural things and like i studied politics uh, i was a policy major in school so uh i like trying to look outside of the monoculture in which most rpgs like grew up in for cues on how to build how groups work so uh, i like to do the like if this thing is true what else happens to the culture because of it? So like, if you're dealing with like sea elves, I love like, that. if it's true that uh, the sea elves happen to be in a place that you know, based on like the module you were given is super stormy, like what else is true about that group then? Like, how do they feel about like the analogies they built to, they build to describe their own emotions? Like, are they like weather-based? Are they like, do they have a sense of like kindredship with like stormy weather like how did they build like their superstitions around how they act like how are they, like how do they socialize because of it is it like monsoon season so like maybe there's a, like this interesting culture of like everyone kind of hibernates down during and like bunkers down during a part of the year like how do those things ripple into everything else in the world is usually how i try to build like yeah i really like the phrase like if this one thing is true then like what else must be true because of it if and this, then, just, then that. Yeah. And then you can get really weird with it. And then sometimes the, like your players will never see the, like, if the, if thing A is true, sometimes they never see thing A. They only experience thing like W and like, it's like that little treat for you that like mm -hmm. it's internally consistent, but they'll never know why. That's my favorite part of oh the world gosh, building. Right. Yeah. Oh, having so that good. one thing in your back pocket, you're like, oh, they're dancing around it. I don't know if they're going to get yeah, to it right? though. Like, but. I hope you do. But even if you don't, like you can throw any like weird curveball about like oh well what's this group like and you're like well i know that all of this is built off of like the one truth in the world that mm -hmm. you can like iterate on it endlessly in the moment when you have to like improv improvise an answer in the moment so uh shadow uzumaki wants to know what are strengths that dnd has over other systems and what areas do you think it needs to improve on yeah um strengths i would say like they do a really good job be just because it's been around for maybe forever, um, that they do a really good job of covering the kind of interactions that you have in like, it's a, it tells a pretty specific kind of type of story, but I think they do a good job of gamifying all the kind of interactions you can have. So like spellcasting covers like in combat and out of combat and face things and like downtime things and like things that like 
are important to you, but no one else would, like, would ever care about. Like, you can actually build characters. I think, to answer the other part of the question, I think it's really hard in D&D to play a character that isn't optimized. Because if anyone else in the group does it, you're going to kind of be the drag on the group where you're like, well, I want to play a bard. Yeah, well, we're playing Mad Mage and we're just doing a dungeon crawl. So, like, please don't be the merfolk bard right now. Like, that's not useful. And you're like, but I want <laughs> So I think it's really hard to make, like, quirky choices or, like, I'm going to be a known barbarian and no one can stop me. <laughs> it, it, it builds itself into, like, be the, this type of thing because you'll be the best version of it. And you're just kind of walking around as, like, I don't know, a pile of, like... Everyone's got to be like the elf wizard or like the Goliath barbarian. Like, so that kind of bums me out. But if you are willing to put aside the idea that like D&D is a game that sometimes you feel like you have to win, uh, it covers like a very like large spectrum of like scenarios you want to, you can encounter. So I think that like you actually can play in the sandbox. It's a little more of a sandbox than I think people give it credit for. You can build kind of different games in it. There are also lots of other games that do that kind of stuff too. So like, look for indie games first. But like, D and D is actually a better son, a better sandbox than it's given credit for. Okay. Gaiaco wants to know how do you both check in with your players to make sure they are not too uncomfortable with things that are coming up in the game. Yeah, um, I will always secretly have X cards on the table, and. Uh, through lots of prompting and like texting and like just so you know if you think we're even heading in the direction of something that you might be a little uncomfortable with like tap it we will like i'm happy to swerve like i'm a good enough improviser we will go around it uh if you're comfortable saying something uh in the game about it to like like to kind of spot veto something that's about to happen where you're like oh it's not that i hate this idea but like this guy that's coming in that's clearly going to be a love interest you've named you've inadvertently named him after my father I don't want to bang my dad, please. Like, just change the name. Like, so being really upfront about being able to speak above game when it's necessary, uh, I think is probably the biggest thing I personally lean into to make sure stuff is safe. But other than like the pre-check-in stuff, I don't know. I, I, I believe very strongly in like players telling you what they want to do. And if it's a game that like hasn't leaned into some like questionable territory before, maybe trust like that's for a reason and I will approach it slowly enough that people will have time to check in with me before we get into it. It's not gonna be like, surprise, you're in like a unconsensual sex dungeon. <laughs> like, Oh, that came out of nowhere. Like if we're going to do something questionable and risky, you'll be led into it enough that you'll have time to like realize what's going on, decide if you want to engage with it and like let the table know either like out loud if I'm speaking very specifically of streaming like out loud or like surreptitiously to me and my phone is usually always open for like private messages too i personally um what you don't see if you're watching one of our streams is all of our cameras have a little tally light on them to let you know when the camera is currently looking at you mm -hmm. so i like to use that opportunity to know if the camera's not on me and it's not on someone i need to check in on i can give them a quick look yeah eye contact uh, for me is very important uh, with the players at the table to just, oh, we just did a thing that was intense. Eye contact, we're good. While yeah. the camera's on somebody else, well, I know it's not on me. So we get to use that light a lot to kind of check in with each other, give each other looks and, and feel things out. And also just having an open line of communication, like you said, absolutely on and off stream to make sure that people uh, are okay with what's going on and uh, comfortable with everything that's, you know, 
about to happen. And I try to give people a general idea of what might come up in an episode. Yeah. If I think it's going to be heavy. Yeah. Uh, well, that pretty much rounds us out. Thanks. I know there's a couple more questions, but we are running short on time. Not a problem. I feel like this has been extremely informative. Oh, I hope so people much. listening and or watching have enjoyed this and are, are getting a lot from it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. For joining thank us you. as our first guest. Oh, this is so cool. And I can't wait to like watch other people and learn from them. And I'm learning. I, that's out. why I did this. You yeah. know, I wanted to find new tools nice. to uh, utilize. And I can't do that if I'm always working. That's so true. will make me learning uh, nice. part of work. I think for you, like the biggest note I would have is that you should give me my cheese back. Great. So thank you so much. <laughs> Follow Abria on her social media accounts to keep up with all of her table adventures. I've been your host, Zach Lim Eubank. Uh, forge a path and expect to get lost. That's my number one tip for all of you. Thank you so much for listening to Game Masters. Game Masters.